My name is Taylor, and John asked me a couple weeks ago, Kaylee, just on. Um, a couple weeks ago to come talk to you guys about First Thessalonians chapter, we're going to be in chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3, and just a little bit about myself. I used to come here in college to Cross Point, and then I also ran a youth ministry called Youth for Christ at the high school, and have a special place in my heart for Eureka. I'm uh, currently in seminary. If college wasn't enough, I went to grad school now and uh, decided to spend a ton of money to learn how to talk about this book. So let's see if I'm putting my money to good use <laughs> tonight. But let's start with uh, prayer, all right? So Jesus, we ask you to come and be among us and uh, teach us. May I step out of the way and allow the Spirit to teach and open up your word, not just for tonight, but may what is taught here from your word transpire to many, many years. In your name, amen. All right, let me get to my notes so I don't just yap at you guys for 20 or so minutes. So I'm wanting to keep this short. My time is for you, so whatever you want to get out of this, you will. So if you want to ask me questions, interrupt me, go for it. Um, but if you don't, I will just keep going through my spiel. So we're going to dive into this text, um, which you guys have been going through, right, previously. And just to kind of set the tone for the text, um, God has been bringing examples and illustrations to my mind about how this text, um, which we're about to read, is to be understood. And at my church, we have a mission board. So we sponsor missionaries all throughout the uh, country and throughout the world. And we have uh, some missionaries that are back from China right now, but the reason they're back from China is because they were basically kicked out for spreading the gospel. They are there to do translating work for a small tribe in China, and while they were at in Hong Kong at a missions conference, they found out that they were either probably going to be arrested if they went back. So they were kicked out, and now they're back home. But um, they are really worried about the people they were leading in Christ and the mission work they were doing. They're also really worried about the missionaries that they were partnering with, with translating scripture. And for some of them, they've lost complete contact with, and that they are kind of in the dark with what's really going on. And that's kind of where Paul is, where we meet Paul in First Thessalonians, he's kind of in the dark with where this young followers of Jesus, where they're at, and if they're still holding fast, or if they've been swept away by opposition. So join me in reading, and we're going to start in verse 17 of chapter 2. So if you have a Bible or you want to look at your sheet, that will be handy. So Paul says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person and not in heart, we endeavored the more or eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. But what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? 
for you are our joy and our glory. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For we were with you. We kept telling you beforehand and that you would suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know now. For this is the reason when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn of your faith for fear that you have somehow been the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come from us, come to us from you, and has brought to us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you and your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For thanksgiving, we can return to God for you in all the joy that we feel for your sake behind before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day, you may see, we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Okay, so Paul talks about being torn away and just to grasp what he's even talking about, his prior history with these people, Paul and Silas, which is one of his homies, and Timothy and probably Luke were journeying on foot or by a boat to these new Jesus followers, or finding new Jesus followers, spreading the good news of Jesus throughout these Roman colonies. So they're kind of on the outskirts of uh, civilization in the Roman Empire and going to the farthest places they could reach to get the message out there. And Paul and Silas, they go to this area, Macedonia, which is where the church of Thessalonica is at. It'd be like saying, hey, we went to Caswell County, and then the letter is written to Eureka. So in their journey, they meet this um, woman, and she's demon-possessed. And she's kind of being like a thorn in Paul's side. Uh, flip to, if you have your Bible, flip to Acts 16, and it says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, that's a fancy word to say demon, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servant of God the Most High, who are proclaimed to you the way of salvation. Okay, so you're like, well, that's a good thing, right? Well, she was, it's more of like an annoying context. So like they would walk into an area and then this woman is just blurting out things. And people are like, okay, this is strange. Like I'm going to get away from them. So <laughs> this is hilarious. So it says, she kept doing this for many days. And ha Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Okay, and then after they do this, you think people would be like, overjoyed, but actually these people were kind of PO'd at Paul because through this woman, 
they were kind of making money off the side. So she was telling fortunes. So she was giving people insight, and they were getting personal knowledge about themselves or their future. And Paul kind of disrupted their money making. So they kind of ran Paul out of town, and it's because Paul got ran out of town that they ended up sailing to Thessalonica, which is Church of Thessalonians. So Paul and Silas sailed to Thessalonians. Now I'm in chapter 17. And the same thing kind of happened. Paul strolls into town. He goes to his Jewish homies and talks about Jesus and says Jesus is the risen king that our whole Bible was talking about long ago, and we need to recognize him. And then another riot breaks out because in this town, similar to the previous town, uh, because people didn't really have Instagram, you know, Snapchat didn't come for a long time, uh, people's entertainment was drawn through public speaking. So you would wait for someone with great public speaking skills to tell stories or entertain you in the streets, and these people would prey on you to get money from you. And they would prey on the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. And Paul does this, but he doesn't take money for it. So basically, Paul, again, gets in the way of these people taking advantage of other people and puts an end to their money making. So they get PO'd at Paul, and they try running him out of town again. And I just want to read real quick in chapter 17. This is what they said about them. They said, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. Jason, Jason is a jailer that actually was supposed to keep Paul and Silas captive, and then all of a sudden God set them free. And from that event, Jason, this jailer person that was holding them captive, becomes a follower of Jesus also. So Jason, that one guy, has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul and Silas flee because it's dangerous to be in Thessalonica because of their work. They become well-known, wanted figures. But it's interesting that they're not threatened because they're trying to tell people a new moral way to live. They're not threatened because they're trying to tell people how to get to heaven. They're threatened because they're essentially saying Caesar, who is at that time like the ruler of the world, they were saying he is not the true ruler of this world and that there's another king and his name's Jesus. So people are like, this is treason. Like what these guys are saying sounds like they're wanting to rebel and revolt we got to get them out because this is not going to be good for us. So now back to our letter in 1 Thessalonians. And again, like tonight, you are going to get whatever you want out of this as much as you want. So let's dive back into the text. We're going to go through three parts so you kind of know where I'm going and what direction and what we're going to learn tonight. Okay? So as I teach, I want you to pay attention with what I'm pointing out because I want this to be an opportunity for you to learn how to study the Bible for yourself. So then you can see, like, oh, like, Taylor pointed out this, or, like, Taylor asked these questions about the text. Like, these are good questions for me to ask as I approach the scriptures for myself. So that's, that's step number one. I want you to kind of just analyze how I'm teaching and what I'm pointing out. Two, so these are the three main things I want to go over that I think this text uh, touches on. It says, how do we determine the will of God and, op- and what is the will of God and what is opposition from Satan? 
because there's times, you know the people, they're like, Satan did this, Satan did that, and behind every bush and corner is Satan. And you know, other people, they're like, oh no, like this terrible thing happened in my life. But you know, God's behind that. I know God will come through. Or, you know what, this really seems like a bad thing, but in, in the end, God made this happen. So we either have two groups of people that are attributing everything to Satan, good or bad sometimes, or everything to God, good or bad. But Paul here attributes some things to God and some things to Satan. Paul doesn't shy back from that we have a real enemy in the spiritual realm, but he also recognizes that Satan is not all-powerful and that God is, quote-unquote, what we say, sovereign, big fancy word for saying in control. So that's one thing we're going to touch on today. Um, Another thing is Paul talks about a reward. And we're going to see what is our reward or whose reward you are in this text. We're going to see how Paul deals with rewards. And then something we're going to conclude with talking about is faith, optimism. You know, people that aren't even religious, um, there's even a song that's like, you just got to have faith, 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 faith. Um, I know, right? Um, people just talk like, well, I have faith that this will happen. Or, well, I have faith in Jesus. We hear that all the time in almost every sermon you hear. But sometimes we can hear things so repetitively they lose their meaning. So we're going to talk about is faith an internal feeling or is faith an action that flows from me? Or is it both? So we're going to hit in three patterns. We're going to focus on 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 into verse 10 of chapter 3. Then we're going to focus on chapter 3, 1 through 5, and then conclude with 5 through 10. All right? So let's move forward. I talked about that. So is everyone tracking? This is just a point where I want to pause. Nod, give me some feedback. Yes, no, you can talk to me. I'm not someone that's important. So Paul is left in the dark, um, and he was abruptly shooed out, politely, if you could say, from this area. But he has no idea where these people are at. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time. Um, some other versions, or again, just behind the language, talks about um, this torn away refers to an, a parent being torn from their child. So some translations will say, but since we were orphaned from you. Um, or you could think about it, whoever approached an animal. I remember one time I was hiking with some friends out in Morton at Northwoods Park, and we we're disc golfing, and I throw my disc. And all of a sudden, this uh, um, what was it? It's a big fox, more or less, or a coon, jumps into the, the path. And it's like snarling at me, right? And like I run just around the corner, and I see there's a den. So there's like a baby coons. And like obviously, this mother was wanting to defend her babies. So just to kind of get in the mindset of how Paul is feeling, Paul feels as if he's orphaned away from his children, or if that someone has come in between him and his babies the same way a coon or a bear would be protective 
for its babies and its children. Now, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can't really relate to that, Taylor. But you can relate on the other end as being children. So um, I remember when I was in high school, um, I got my phone around the same time I started driving. Kind of, can you, can, can you understand why? Why would I get my phone the same time I started driving? Think, who's going to contact me? You can go. So, on, especially in winter, right, your parents will get more concerned for you as you drive. You go hang out at a friend's house. You stay out later. They're going to be concerned. They want you to contact them when you're on your way home. And let's say you're at your friend's house. You're kicking it. Your phone's somewhere else. You're playing Call of Duty. And um, your phone rings, and you don't answer it. Your parents instantly go to worst-case scenario that you're dead in a ditch in the middle of winter. No, well, it, but it's all true. All of you can relate to that at some point. If you drive, like, you will get that text. And the more you delay in your response, the more worried they get. I'm married, and I still get these messages. <laughs> so that is exactly how Paul feels. Like, he's 500 miles, he's miles and miles away from these people. He has no clue where they're at. He has no clue if they even care what's happened to him. They may think that Paul was just like one of these people trying to get money off of them. And they're like, now they could think, oh, good, Paul's out of here. That guy was just trying to take advantage of us. So Paul's worried that they may think poorly of him or that they may have left Jesus altogether. So he says, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with you with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Now, pay attention to this. This is kind of like Paul's way of hinting forward to what you guys will learn in a couple weeks. Paul's going to contrast the way that he's been separated from his people comparably to the way that we are separated from Jesus. So that's just a little um, nugget you can hold in the back of your pocket to know that that is something you're going to talk about later, is how we have been separated from Jesus, and that one day he will return, just as Paul one day wants to return to this pe these people. That's just a tidbit. But then, this is where I want us to focus. But he says, and again and again, but Satan hindered us. Okay, at times we may, Satan, I think of this episode, instantly I just think of this episode of Tom and Jerry where Tom is sentenced to hell and he, he drops in this boiling pot with Satan down in hell trying to kill Tom. And if any of you even know who Tom and Jerry is, does any of you know who Tom and Jerry is? Okay, thank goodness for cartoons. <laughs> and Satan is not this uh, conniving figure that's ruling in hell. Um, the, the term is uh, a poser. You can now see why my wife wrote. Okay. Um, but the term means opposer. So anytime uh, Paul or anyone talks about Satan, they're talking about opposition. That this is the whole point of Satan's plan, is to oppose the will of God, to get in the way. Um, another way we can understand how Paul is talking about suffering and Satan is how he talks about... Um, who can read verse 3-3 three, three for me? So you got, the ver you got it all in front of you. Who can uh, tell me what chapter 3, verse 3 says? You look, a good tip is to look forward or behind to see where an author is talking about to get a better idea of how they're trying to convey a thought. 
first three, please. Okay, read loud and clear. All righty. So, what? Okay, so in 3.3, three, right, it says moved. That's a word I want to focus on. So another moved kind of like as if you've been carried. Carried away. Or uh, the, the imagery that he's conveying, he says, moved, or what does he say in um, hindered? These are obstacles, almost obstacles, and so, almost as if something's pushing them away. So the image that came to my mind, of course, I'm going to be talking about a mystery here, so I, I can't really describe it in full, but the image that comes to my mind is that Paul is a boat, Yes, he is a person, but in this image, he's a boat. Paul. And then Satan is putting up these obstacles, right? And then the church of Thessalonians is over here. And the will of God is the wind that carries and directs Paul. Paul knows that he is supposed to be here. But Satan opposes, and it causes Paul to stay elsewhere. So it redirects Paul, but it doesn't mean God won't still accomplish and guide Paul or the others in that direction. Because obviously Paul still gets there. We have the letters. So an interesting thing, because Satan opposed Paul, he wasn't able to go to them. Okay. This is important to know because if Paul would have been able to go with them, he wouldn't have wrote the letter. We have this letter passed down throughout centuries because Satan opposed Paul. So in an odd way, we can thank Satan for the first letter to the Thessalonians. That God was able to reveal his wisdom and teaching because Satan got in the way and caused Paul to write this letter to further guide not only the church then, but the church today. So that's a mystery. I'm not saying I understand how that all works, how God, good, and evil work. If God is fully sovereign, there shouldn't be any evil at all. That's how that works and reasons in our mind. But yet, that is not what we see in the world. And this is a mystery you'll have to wrestle with all your life. But the will of God will always carry us where he wants us to go no matter how much Satan opposes. So that's the first uh, concept I want to get through, is how do we know the will of Satan or the will, will of God and how that conjoins together? And that we can always trust that the will of God will direct us to those who need Jesus. That's always a safe bet. Just making sure I'm on track. Thanks for your patience, guys. But then, let me flip back. We're going to jump back into 17 through 20. All right, so the next concept we're going to talk about that's important to understand, what is Paul saying? 
is he goes into saying, because Satan hindered him, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Okay, well, maybe some of you may be thinking this. Like, Paul elsewhere says, like, my only boast is in the cross of Christ. Is Paul saying that he has another thing to boast in? Is Paul saying that there's another reward that we are to go after? Paul is saying that the greatest reward in Galatians 6, he's saying the greatest reward is receiving Jesus himself. That, as he says in Galatians, that we either come to know God or rather have become known by God. That that's the greatest achievement as a follower of Christ. But that doesn't negate other things that God will give us as we follow him, as we have faith in him. And this is what Paul gets at. He says, he's thinking of these people who he does not know where they're at in their walk. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord? And you can almost just think, dot, dot, dot. And then I would almost think it would read better if it just say, it's you. You are my crown of glory. You are my joy. That, and I want to touch on this. What does Paul mean by crown? We don't really have figures in our world today that have crowns, but um, the only thing I can think of is a British monarchy. There was a big wedding late one time, right? Yeah. And what did the guy wear on his head? A crown, right? That's a jewel. So the reason, why does he wear the crown? Why does he wear the crown? Choices of royalty. He didn't earn that. If you're in a British monarchy or a monarchy in general, you, your crown you wear isn't an earned crown. You get that because you have the right heritage. That is not the kind of crown that Paul talks about. There's another Greek word for crown that you could have used, and that's diadem, like jewel, crown, crown jeweling. That's used a lot in Revelation. But the word that he uses is, let me nerd out for a little bit, um, stephaneos, which is referring to what a, if you think of the Olympics, right? Um, I can draw really well, but this is a very bad representation. I just have to defend myself because I do draw really well. Um, but the crown he's talking about is more of the wreath crown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So think of like this, uh, what I want to show you is like this Greek statue in like jacked and like having the fist on it and have the crown. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's this wreath. And the, the wreath that Paul's hitting here, as I already said, Paul was, why was Paul kicked out of this place? Specifically for saying what? For saying you need to change your moral behavior, for saying you're going to go somewhere after you die, what? There's another king. So when Caesar, um, he's hitting on imagery. So this, the church of Thessalonica, Thessalonica in general, was a colony that Caesar Augustus came and conquered himself. Um, you'll learn a lot more about Julius Caesar, I think, in like freshman year you take Julius Caesar. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Caesar Augustus becomes king, and he goes to conquer this area. And when a Caesar would conquer an area, he would roll in in a parade with 
this wreath over his head, signifying his victory. Victory. Signifying his victory. That Paul is saying, because he got the message out to the people in Thessalonica, that they, the people there, are his victory in Jesus. And this is what I want to hit on. Um, this Again, I said this whole past week, I was kind of bombarded with uh, examples and uh, experiences that, related, that resonated very well with this text. Um, I received a call very late in the night from a friend who's in a very hard spot. Um, this friend is in the military, and he kind of was at the end of himself. He's surrounded by guys that go to strip clubs, um, guys that go to bars, and then people that just don't emulate Jesus. And he's been detoured, kind of like um, that ship analogy. Satan's really hindered him. And as someone I invested in a lot um, when he was in high school and into college, it pains me to see him go through this. It pains me to see him so cut off from anyone that knows Jesus. Um, that his, his faith has been moved. But then, literally a couple days later, um, I received another call from a friend that just got out of basic. Um, his second time going through basic, actually. He got discharged once and went back. And he was um, not deployed or anything like that, but he was around guys when they were on base that would go to the strip clubs, go to bars, um, and do that kind of thing. And uh, I ended up, he was in town, so I was able to invite him over to come kick it in my living room. And uh, I just had to ask him, like, how, because I just had this other friend that I poured into, and this guy I also poured into, um, and just asked him, like, how were you able to keep faith? And this is his, what he said. He said, there is no way I could be disloyal to Jesus, that I could turn my back on him, especially because of how much you invested into me and others that what keeps him grounded is that he remembers people that poured into him. And he recalls who his loyalty or his allegiance is truly to. His allegiance doesn't change to the circumstance. And he said that he had to fight every day to maintain faith in Jesus and not go astray. So this segues right into this next part. Is faith a feeling or an action, or is it both? How do we reconcile that? As I said, we use faith in such an odd way. Um, we use faith as just pure optimism. You hear so many people talk about, well, I have faith. Like, I don't believe in God, but I have faith. Or, oh, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. This is the world that we're growing up in. Or you hear over and over again that I have faith in Jesus. And maybe the person means, well, at one time I said a prayer, and that's what that means. I, had, I put my 
faith in Jesus. I trust that if I believe he died, rose again from my sins, and forgives me, then, then I get to go to heaven. And that's usually the context that we think of faith. But I think Paul is using faith in a different way. And let me highlight that word. You see it. Tell me that. I see it. I see it. There's, yeah, there's two occurrences of it. Um, just sometimes you overstimulate and you see both. So let me just read and slow down and let you guys reframe and catch up. So he says, and I'm going to go to verse 1 to verse 5. So just hang on, guys. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in faith so that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer afflictions, and just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn of your faith, for our fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and, my, and our labor would have been in vain. So Paul says he wants to know what has become of their faith. He says that he's worried that they've been carried away, blown completely off course. And it is here we need to, again, slow down and realize this is a letter, guys. We're reading someone else's mail. This isn't some theology book by, like, John Piper or David Platt or Francis Chan that he was like, I'm going to, this is going to be published all around the world, right? No, Paul had the intention of writing to people he knew genuinely that we're reading someone else's mail. And sometimes when we see it in the Bible, words and uh, phrases, we kind of get them muddled because we have other things in the background that kind of distract us from get, see what he's getting at. So I want to add a fresh perspective on how the word faith can be used um, because I think it'll help. So there's this book called First Maccabees. It's not scripture or anything like that, but... First Maccabees was written 150 years before Jesus. Super nerdy, hold on. So Maccabee was this guy that was like, his Jewish brothers were being imprisoned, and he's like, I'm going to have none of that. So he gets him and his homies together, and they start a revolt. It's not what Jesus would do. But this is what this guy did. And he got his guys together, and during this time, there was kind of like a civil war that broke out. And people are trying to see who has alliances to who. So, right here, I'm going to read a passage from 1 Maccabees. It's one king asking the Jewish people if they still are going to be on his side. He's trying to figure out how to win this war. So, King Demetrius, to the nation of the Jews, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard of it and rejoiced. Now, continue still, keep faith with us and we will repay you with good works and we, for what you have done for us. Okay, just because I think it's helpful to see the word faith used in a non-religious context. Um, did you pick up on how faith was used? The, the king was using the word faith, trust, belief, 
or loyalty, allegiance. I don't know, do they still do the pledge in the school? We, that's kind of like the only time we hear the word, I pledge allegiance to the flag. We're pre- pledging our loyalty. We're pledging that we will respect and we stand for the things that the flag stands for. Now, I want to say that Paul is using the words loyalty and allegiance to kind of give us a clear understanding of how we should understand what it means to have faith. So I'm just going to read the passage again and interject the words loyalty and allegiance where it says faith. So just follow along. Therefore, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in, our loyalty, in your loyalty that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this, that we were with you, and we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn of your allegiance for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted and our labor would be in vain. When I interject those words, it almost sounds like Paul's like writing like a, he's in the military and he's like writing a report out to see what's going on in the front lines. And I think it can be significantly helpful for you um, to sometimes when you see the word faith to say loyalty, allegiance, not just mental belief. And this is going to touch back on rewards, too. Um, I think I kind of swarmed past that a little bit. Um, Because the reason Paul cares about their loyalty and allegiance, and he talks about them being his reward, is because our reward, guys, isn't what we put on Snapchat and Facebook about, oh, look how good of a Christian I am. Our reward for our allegiance isn't the mission trips that we go on. Our reward for our allegiance to Jesus isn't about how much Bible you know. Faith sometimes can be passive. I'm going to have faith in God to take care of this. But loyalty and allegiance requires action, a conviction about your belief. And that Paul's writing to them because he wants to make sure not just that they have the right doctrine, but that they are also carrying out the right living. And this moves into the last part of the, of the passage. Because when I was in high school, our youth group was huge. Like 100 people would come out. We had over 20 people in our small group. Wow, 20 people in our small group. Just senior guy small group. I think there's only five that are walking with Jesus today. When I was in Youth for Christ, we got a Bible study together to go through the whole book of Romans. This is insane. And 80 people showed up. I think only like 10 are still following Jesus. That when we follow Jesus, it's not just about the mass or the, the people that show up, but the people that continue. And just like I shared the stories about my friends, or you can think back to the missionaries, how they're so concerned about their their friends in China and if they're in prison or not. What matters as a follower of Jesus 
and why loyalty matters is because your, the way you exercise your allegiance, your loyalty to Jesus, affects other people. It affects everyone that pours into you. And that the decisions you'll have to make after high school, which some of you, that may be like, you're like, that's so long away, dude. But the questions you'll have to ask is, are you loyal to Crosspoint? Are you loyal to Hype? Are you loyal to your youth leaders? Like, it's awesome to have youth leaders that pour into you day in, day out, week in, week out. But then what happens when they're removed? Just like Paul was removed from these people. What's going to happen to you when you are removed from this spiritual safety net and support? Where will your loyalties lie? Where will your allegiance be to Jesus? Because the way that you follow Jesus reflects the people that poured into you. And that's why Paul is so, um, why he focuses on that crown of glory and he's so serious about it is because he traveled, he, he allowed himself to be beaten. There's this one time where he gets beaten, they drag him out because they think he's dead. And he goes back. <laughs> he goes right back to the city. That Paul endured so much because he, he saw people like you as his reward. And as a sign that Jesus is not just going to fix things in the end, that that's when Jesus is king, but that Jesus is king now, which means that we live under his rule. Even if the rest of the world doesn't see it. That we recognize that something happened when he rose from that grave and it changed history. It is the pivoting point of all humanity. And that Paul says that we are destined for that. That all, everyone, if you call yourself a Christian, our destinies are tied together. And that we will all one day see him face to face. And that all the people that you can be praying for, that you will be pouring into later in life, and you can be praying for all the people that have poured into you already. So let me dive into the last part, because Paul believes that it's worth sacrificing even letting his best friend go out and leave himself alone. Though Paul would rather have himself isolated than to allow people like you to be isolated from support. So he sends Timothy to do something pretty special. He says, But now that Timothy has come from us, to you from us, and has brought us good news of your allegiance or loyalty, of your faith and love, and reported that you always remembered us kindly, and that you long to see us as we long to see you, and for this reason, brothers, all this distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through our faith. For we now live if you are standing steadfast in the Lord. When he says we now live, he's like, we now live anew. The way he's using live is the way that Jesus lives after his resurrection. That it's a whole new way of being human. A whole new way of seeing the world live. Not just we go in day in, day out, but that we are blown away by what God has done. We live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, that the, the, when you see your disciples 
or people that I poured into you, when you see them walking steadfast in the Lord, it, it fills you up. That you guys have the ability to be the greatest encouragement to those who have poured into you. You guys have more power over those who have devoted their lives for you and taught you Jesus than you realize. You have the ability to be an acre in their heart or to be one of their greatest joys. And that's what Paul has said that they have done for him. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your loyalty or allegiance. And I think that's important to see that he says what is lacking. That we don't have it all together. That you're not always going to maintain that perfect loyalty or allegiance. That you will be caught off guard. That you will be hindered. You will be blown off course. But that does not mean you do not get back on course. That no one is sinned too far from grace. Can I share a story from a book I've been reading? So this is a super philosophy nerdy book. Um, the guy's name's Dostoyevsky. It's not. He's from Russia. The guy um, was an author in eight, late 1800s, and he wrote a novel about this guy that's trying to basically justify sin. And the moral of the story of the book is that when we commit sin, we are committing to give ourselves over to insanity, complete chaos. But in this story, as this guy's trying to contemplate how to murder his landlord and justify it, he goes into this pub, this bar, a place you would not think to find the gospel. He finds this guy that's an alcoholic. The guy is so much an alcoholic that he gives, he gets the money from his daughter, and she ends up having to sell herself into prostitution because she's trying to take care of her dad and her mom. And then the dad is such a scum of the earth person, right? He takes the money that his daughter gives him and spends it on more alcohol. Like, you're like, this guy is too far from redemption. The author, Dostoevsky, gives you a representation of a person that you are just like, that person is too far from coming back to Jesus. Whatsoever. And then the guy goes on this, like, he comes to the end of himself at the bottom of a bottle. And he says, oh, one day he's going to come. He's meaning, like, Jesus is going to return. Meaning, like, he's like, he's going to judge the good, the bad, the meek, the righteous, and the scum of the earth. And he goes, and lastly, he's going he's gonna to judge people like me. He says, I'm not even deserving pity. He says, but I hope that Jesus forgives my daughter because she's doing all this because of me and that her own sin, her prostitution, is not because of any lustful desire in her. And then he, he, he imagines Jesus coming. Imagine Jesus coming down and kind of parting people left and right. And then he says, then he's going to come to me. And then Jesus says, come, ye drunkards. And then the pe it's almost like the people on the right, the people on the right are the good people. And the people on the right, they're like, Lord, why do you call him? Lord, and then he says, those with understanding, like, why do you call these people? And Jesus says in the story, because they did not even think they were deserved to be called. And that's the beauty of grace, guys, is that we don't deserve it. 
And God can give and release someone from sin at any time and give them that grace to come home, to come back, to come back to allegiance, to have that loyalty anewed. That no one is too far outside of grace, even like that man in that story. And it's exactly people like that that the gospel is most best understood by. So I don't know if you have secret sins in your life and you're like, outwardly, like, I profess allegiance to Jesus. But inwardly, like, I have so much crap that you don't even want to know about. Jesus is extending that arm out and saying, come you, come back, come back on course. Join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for allowing us to know you so much that it is contagious and that we have to share it. Give all the students in this room insight to how to study scripture in the future. And may they uplift their leaders and uplift one another. In your name, amen.